Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. People say you shouldn't work with children or animals, and they also mean you shouldn't work with friends, but I don't actually think that's true. This room is full of quite a lot of friends, and Kirsty is a friend of mine. Uh, we were discussing how unbelievably picky teenage boys are about the uh, brand of uh, coat they like to wear yesterday. Um, uh, she's, she's a sort of media polymath. She presents front row. She was the chairman of the Orange Prize for Fiction. She's worked on Channel 4 News, on Newsnight, on the Sunday Times. She's rather unusual in that she spans high culture and high politics and foreign affairs. She's about to move temporarily to New York, which I'm actually not that happy about, but okay. Kirsty, over to you to introduce your session and your panel. Well, hello and uh, welcome. I must confess that when I was uh, asked to do this, my first response uh, was, um, what the hell is the gender agenda? But I'm told that that's what we're going to be discussing on the panel. So I'm hoping my panellists will have some uh, good answers to that. My, my second response, um, uh, which I didn't voice at the time, uh, but, um, but I will now, is that, uh, you know, isn't this all a bit 70s? You know, haven't we moved on? Um, I mean, just uh, you know, look at the, the women on my panel. They're all incredibly high achievers. Um, why are we still having these discussions? Um, I work in the BBC where, you know, there are women in very high positions. It's uh, been transformed since I started 25 years ago and I was about the only female reporter in the newsroom and people used to get me to ask me to get tea and that sort of thing. It really did happen. Um, but then yesterday I read uh, something uh, on the BBC website which reminded me why there still is a gender agenda, which is, uh, you may have read that... Uh, the shortlist for BBC Sports Personality of the Year didn't include a single woman. Um, now, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a sports fan, so, I mean, you know, one of my reactions was, well, really? What? You mean there were, there were no women's, you know, female athletes who made the grade? Oh, that uh, seems strange. Uh, but, uh, no, according to sports presenters uh, Gabby Logan and Claire Balding, who pointed out the two of the men on the list uh, of ten sports personalities, Andy Murray and the boxer Amir Khan, hadn't even had a particularly good year. Uh, meanwhile, there were champion swimmers like Kerry Ann Payne and Rebecca Adlington, the world champion rower, Catherine Granger, world champion triathlete Chrissy Wellington, all won major medals this year, uh, didn't make the shortlist. Hmm, wonder why. Uh, now, uh, I was uh, amusing on this with Julia yesterday, and I was saying, well, it's because all the sports editors are male, and male sports have, you know, uh, uh, are given greater prominence, and I think that is something to do. But Julia said, actually, there'd been a similar ruckus over the shortlist for um, editorial intelligence's comment awards this year. Um, the shortlist was dominated by men. There were some women on it. Um, uh, but in this case, um, there were several female judges uh, doing the selection. Uh, so, you know, that poses the question, um, you know, do women sometimes hold other women back? Um, it, or is it the old self-esteem problem that, you know, somehow we kind of think that men do things better? Um, and I think this is, the, this is some of the things that, that uh, we will um, be discussing this morning um, with my uh, very eminent panel. Let me um, introduce them in the order in which they are going to speak. Uh, 
Vivian Hunt, who is director of McKinsey & Company. Vivian was promoted in June 2010 to lead McKinsey's pharmaceutical and medical products practice. She has a 20-year career serving a variety of healthcare clients. The practice is one of McKinsey's top three industry groups and under her leadership is growing in double digits across the region. She served as a regional coordinator, midwife and volunteer in the US Peace Corps in Senegal and as a healthcare project director helped structure and launch a Medicaid-managed care plan in New York. Um, next to Vivian is Lynn Franks, businesswoman, author and broadcaster. Lynn Franks, often described as a lifestyle guru and futurist. And as she just reminded me, the inspiration for um, Edie and Ab Fab. I think we should mention that in the bio. <laughs> Eddie, sorry, not Fab. Um, she has extensive... Um, consulting experience in both public and private sectors. She's the founder of um, SEED, Sustainable Enterprise and Empowerment Dynamics, a provider of women's learning and coaching programs on economic empowerment, sustainable business practice and creative um, leadership. In 2010, Lynn launched Beehive, which is a series of unique and stylish women's business lounges. Um, and its hub, in collaboration with the Regis Group, um, is in Covent Garden, London. And Lynn also just told me that they are going to be expanding globally, which is very exciting. Um, Julie Mayer is founder and CEO of Ariadne Capital. Julie has added a successful media career to her um, business commitments. She's recently joined the BBC's online Dragon's Den. She founded Ariadne Capital in 2000 to back entrepreneurs in the media, mobile internet and communications and internet sectors. Most recently, she founded Entrepreneur Country, a community for leading and emerging entrepreneurs, investors and corporate partners who service the startup industry. In 1998, she co-founded First Tuesday, uh, the largest global network of entrepreneurs. It was sold for $50 million in July 2000. Um, and uh, last but not least, Loretta Tomasi, Chief Executive of the English National Opera since uh, November 2005, having been uh, Executive Director of the ENO um, from 2003. Uh, uh, under her, it has developed a reputation for bold, distinctive and award-winning work and also increased its uh, international partnerships. Um, abroad. Prior to joining the ENO, Loretta was Managing Director and Finance Director of Really Useful Theatres for 12 years, which operates 13 theatres in London's uh, West End. Let me welcome my first um, guest, Vivian Hunt. And let me just tell you that uh, uh, the structure of this is that each speaker will speak for, for a, sh a few minutes and then we're going to throw it open to the floor um, so we can have a, a proper discussion. It is always an odd sensation to welcome people into your own home. It's very easy and very affable. So if I can only assure you that if the quality of the coffee or the biscuits or anything is unpleasing to you, it is only due to, uh, to uh, bad logistics as opposed to any bad intentions. It is an honor for us to be working with Editorial Intelligence, who we've collaborated with on many other initiatives, and indeed the Financial Times, who I typically work with in my healthcare guise. But in some ways, a session like this is more important because it's more foundational to certainly who I am as a person and as a professional, and hopefully will help us challenge ourselves to think and do things a little bit differently. I uh, think it is often convenient to say, is the gender agenda or the diversity agenda still relevant? The answer for me, as well as I think our perspective from McKinsey, is so overwhelmingly yes, that we need to move on from any skepticism 
or indirect denial about that. And even the throwaway comments about is this a serious and material issue, I think in some ways diminish us just that little tiny bit. We've done over the last few years, as the minister referred to, a series of quite uh, substantial quantitative analysis about the status of women in business and in the economy more broadly. We started it, interestingly, in Europe, uh, looking at uh, companies across a number of different sectors and a number of different markets, exported it to the U.S., and are now working on uh, pieces in Asia and the most current version of it will come out in January called Women Matter 5. And we lead with the conclusion, which is that women matter. Full stop. The lack of representation at senior levels, the 3% at uh, boardroom levels, the high variability but generally very low representation at executive committee level, whether um, uh, particularly in private sector organization, although less acutely in public sector, is a fact that speaks for itself. But what's important to note is that the intake statistics have improved. When you look at the almost uh, gender-balanced intake for many companies and certainly uh, public sector um, and uh, infrastructure-related areas, you do see about 50% women coming in, just as we are in the, in the population. But the attrition rates, the promotion funnel, um, uh, winnows quite acutely. Some of us know reasons for that in terms of personal and professional priorities, but the reality is with that level of attrition, the economies, the structural economies, certainly in emerging markets, certainly in developed markets, simply can't keep pace. And so we found that the, the fact base, the business and performance evidence that women matter throughout the progression is, is pretty overwhelming. It also is shown in performance. Um, and I won't repeat the statistics from Women Matter that the, the minister quoted, but the correlation with profitability, shareholder performance, and return on invested capital is, uh, is pretty persuasive. Maybe harder to measure in the public sector system, but as uh, uh, caretakers and families and uh, people who are ourselves the hubs of our own little companies and units in our own homes, we know for sure that women's decision-making and makes a massive, massive difference. If you went to any school that didn't have an appropriate representation of women or walked into any public sector office, you just think the place wouldn't feel right. And so while we can't quantify that feeling as easily in public sector organizations, we'd argue that the performance implication for women in the workforce, public and private, although our research concentrates on the private because the numbers are easier to measure, but we'd argue the trend is probably even more substantial in the public sector that touches people's lives in so many different dimensions. And so the, the data is pretty clear. The impact on positive performance is pretty clear. And importantly, the impact on health, more diverse decisions, more uh, inclusive operating environments, lower numbers of uh, uh, legal challenges, more dialogue, a more inclusive hiring environment, more appealing to women and men, more attractive to diversity. Very often, diversity in gender precedes diversity in culture and ethnicity and is a, an important way that companies get institutionally comfortable, organizations get institutionally comfortable with leveraging, managing, celebrating, and using as competitive advantage difference. The heart of competitive differentiation is different. And acknowledging that and pushing it through, we think, is really the first step. And so we're looking forward to Women Matter 5, but really for us the compelling case is clear. And the emphasis of that research will be 
Um, I think the second point I'd like to make, which is not so much the is there a problem, one is we need to systematically acknowledge, acknowledge that there is a systematic problem, and secondly, that it can be um, approached and solved in a more systematic way. How? That's always the big question with these things, is how do you actually move the needle from where we are today to where we are um, in the future? Because I think for many of us, it's very important that this discussion is forward-looking. As a progressive, modern woman with a broad set of interests and an adaptable mindset towards both work, professional, as well as personal uh, interests, it is just really important that we're forward-looking on this. We can always look backwards at poor numbers, poor achievement, etc., but the, the opportunity for improvement is so great that I think our energies are mu very much best vested in looking forward. And so forward for me includes three things. One is the right level of ambition. None of the athletes that you cited in the Sports Personality of the Year will get up and talk about having low ambitions. They'll talk about having lost a major championship and not knowing when or how they would be able to regain their form, regain that ambition, and achieve it. They'll talk about having been excellent in all the practices but poor on performance day. They'll talk about a challenge, a gap, a shortfall that actually was a huge set of motivations. And so when we think about ambition, for us, whether it's private sector or public sector organization, it starts with that big, lofty, hairy goal that you actually don't quite know how you're going to reach. And for us, that means in terms of the women's agenda and the gender agenda, getting much more specific about what number quantity and quality of gender diversity do you need throughout the company and how big is your gap? Actually understanding in a quantitative and qualitative way what gap is it you're trying to close. There's no organization that solved a problem without knowing the magnitude of it specific to their own company. And so the general statistics are great but the ones that matter most for moving a needle at um, McKinsey are how we quantify that, how it affects our business and then what are we going to do, recruiting, promotion, retention, and performance to be able to close that. Any organization that lacks a clear ambition and CEO or leader sponsorship to address gender diversity as part of their performance and health agenda is almost doomed to fail. The second piece of how has to do with um, being a little bit more systematic about the approach. Joanna Barsh wrote a book a year and a half ago with a colleague of ours from the New York office, I believe, called Centered Leadership, and it talked about the need for transformation. And to me, transform means to change something in such a way that it can't go back to the way it was before. You're permanently changed through an experience. All of us can think of mentors or personal experiences or professional roles, pivotal jobs sometimes we use that language, where we changed in a way that transformed us as a, as a person, as a professional um, as a uh, colleague and family member. And if an organization wants to transform the performance and health benefits it gets from having a diverse agenda, it needs to look at much more permanent and much more structural approaches to that change. For some organizations, that might include quotas. I don't think when you look at examples of Norway and South Africa, you'd say that those things have not worked. Um, we're choosing a different path in the UK, for sure, uh, one that is much more reliant on cooperative leadership and institutional levers, but we would just encourage organizations to get much more specific about the levers that they're going to pull to be able to transform the mindset, starting with ambition and then moving on to being much more systematic about analyzing those levers, and we can debate perhaps later in the afternoon and morning uh, what some of those things could be. Um, and then the final thing I would say is, in the transformation, is the ambition, the getting much more systematic about the approach. 
Um, and then the third thing I would say is also getting much more personal. Each of us represents for someone who a real role model and mentor. And your ability, when you have the privilege of sitting in this room today, whether on the panel or in the audience, because any of us could switch positions, and I think we'd learn something equally uh, challenging and robust, as you will from the five of us uh, today, you know, are we doing what we can to, to provide the role modeling and catalyst that so many uh, young women and young men need to expand their horizons and really be at their full ambition? Um, I don't know what the trigger event was for me. I can probably hypothesize a few things. But it did come down to probably a few people putting their arm around my shoulder at the right time and saying that you can be adaptive and be your full self professionally as well as full self personally. They didn't warn me about my two boys. Um, <laughs> and all the challenges that would bring. But uh, what I can say is they gave me the courage to keep going. And we can all do a little bit of that at a personal level as well, which I think is part of the solution for women. Lynn. Morning. Um, I would like to start also looking at the future. And I would like to, even within this environment, point out... Um, one of the futures that we may have ahead of us, which is going to be very different from the world we live in now. I think it is really crucial on this whole gender agenda to not assume that the world, society and business is carrying on the way it is today. That there is clearly an enormous shift going on and nobody, politicians, economists, even the wonderful McKinsey's can really predict where we're going to be even in 12 months' time. We have seen more shifts in society globally in the last 12 months probably than in the last 100 years or, or more. There is no way, really, uh, of prophesying which way is which. And I think that the most important thing that we women must do as we go with confidence into our leadership roles is not try and recreate and hang on to a system and a paradigm that isn't working. Um, I believe that we are going to see shifts which means that community, small communities, communities virtually, communities where we live, are going to have huge importance to the way our lives are, the way our work patterns are. I believe we're going to see even bigger growth to transition towns, to alternative ways of economy, to barter, to women taking leadership in these roles in community, looking at energy, looking at the way we dispose of our waste, looking at the way we educate our children, the way that um, we have the, hold the visions of our lives that are so different from how we are at the end of 2011. And I'm not a doom merchant on this. I actually think <coughs> that the future is full of excitement and adventures and potential that we, in the, say, the last 30, 40 years of business, haven't even touched. And I have always believed that it is women from the grassroots that are going to take leadership in this shift. And I appreciate that we're sitting in the middle of the London's West End, we're sitting in McKinsey's, we're all, most of us coming from a fairly corporate background. Even I work with large corporations, international corporations myself, but I just think it is so easy to delude ourselves and stay in this absolute illusion that life is going to carry on the same. Because it isn't. It just isn't. I don't think for a second. 
I think what we're seeing with the euro, what we're seeing with the strengths of, of, of China, of India, but even there, they may, China may be the biggest market for luxury goods, but they've also got an enormous resounding poverty problem themselves. We can't possibly say, I hate to say it, even in 12 months' time, that we're going to still be sitting here with the same, let's get more women on, on the boards of Fortune 500s. The reason why, in my opinion, there are not more women on the boards of Fortune 500s, particularly as non-execs, is, is because, yes, we have a confidence level, we have um, a kind of issue with the way we present ourselves and, and fitting in in that way. Mostly it's because we don't want to be. I personally am not remotely interested in being a non-exec of a large corporation, getting paid not a fortune, being partly responsible for their debts legally, and having to sit in a room with lots of people that I wouldn't really normally spend time with, listening to a lot of governance situations that I'm just not interested in. I'm a right brain, creative person, that's the life I want to live. And if a, a large company said to me, come and sit on our board and give us your vision, give us the creative side of how you can see our business, our products, our brands can go, I'll be there like a shop. But don't, don't give me the other stuff, because it's just not where I'm at. That's me, personally. But I think for a lot of women, they, they, where they're moving to is starting their own small businesses. We can see in society the huge amount of redundancies from public sector and other areas that women are looking around and saying, what can I do now? I want to start my own small business. And I apologise that I am reading from my own books. Well, I'm not apologising. I, <laughs> I wrote this 11 years ago, and, uh, and um, I'm writing a new book at the moment about the future, so I'm kind of reading my own stuff again. <laughs> so this is what I wrote in the introduction to the Seed Handbook that came out in 2000. There is a revolution going on in the world, and it's coming from the grassroots. It's the revolution of the sustainable entrepreneurs, mainly women, and it's about personal growth as well as an economic tool. <coughs> it's political with a small p, and it's organic, not structured. It's about creating value, developing relationships, and being financially empowered. It's the feminine way to create business. And that, that particular <coughs> phrase, I believe, is relevant whether you start your own businesses, whether you are... Uh, a leader in a large corporation, whether, wherever you are, whether you're in the public sector, the third sector, we are all in a position to move into leadership roles. There's absolutely no question of it. I went and spoke to a room of 70 women, mostly uh, owners of very much the S end of SMEs in Bristol on Friday, and I asked at the end of the talk, how many of you in this room are leaders? And every single one put their hands up. And that was, you know, for me, that was, yes, that is what it's all about. That is exactly what it's all about. Um, and so the leadership aspect of a woman, the feminine values, um, basing our lives as much on relationships, as much as on our family, you brought in the personal, so, so important. I mean, the way that we connect, the way we communicate, there's been enough study now of neuroscience and the way our hormones work to know that we women do connect and build relationships in different ways to men, I am thrilled to say. Um, we have these hormones that allow us to sit together and share. The first thing we did, I heard you and Julia talking about, well, shall I say? was about your boys pissing on the floor in the mornings and investigating and you mind. I mean, you know, how fabulous. How many, with all due respect to the wonderful men in the room, how many men would say, hi, good morning. You know what we were talking about the other day about our kids? I mean, it just doesn't happen. So, so we have that opportunity to really share and be who we are as women, as human beings, as mothers, as daughters, as grandmothers in my case, you know, as sisters, as friends, within the capacity of ourselves as businesswomen, as leaders, as journalists, um, and, and all the boss politicians, whatever it is we're doing, we, it is much easier for us. And I say that um, not only from a sense of I enjoy it much more that way, but, but I, with sorrow for men because I think it, they also want to be open. Why shouldn't they be? So it's up to us to lead the way, to show that 
the men in our lives, um, that it is fine to be open. It is fine to be who you are. And, um, and <laughs> thinking about my son, who Julia has adopted <laughs> as, uh, as the in-house young Jewish comedian. I have to give the Jewish mother a proud thing. Um, <laughs> who's going to be... Uh, What's he going to be doing? He's going to be the quiz master at your Christmas quiz on Thursday, which is, funnily enough, the same day as I'm doing something at Beehive for women, so exactly the same moment in time. But I'm glad to say that his generation, the 35-year-old young man, total hands-on father of my beautiful grandson, he is open, and it is a new generation, but it is up to us to show all the men that we work with, that we live with and we love, that it is fine to be as open and connected as we are and as we mustn't go backwards and try and become like men. And I don't know if... I'm sure all of you at some point over the last couple of weeks seen all the publicity for the Mrs. Thatcher film that's coming out, which I'm sure all of us can't wait to see. And suddenly, Mrs. Thatcher, who certainly in the 80s and 90s, when I was sort of running my business, was a sort of, oh, no, we don't always want... We don't want to be like her. We don't want to be like a parody of a man like Mrs. Thatcher. And now we're seeing that perhaps she was the icon of feminism after all. But the fact is that... Um, I can't remember why I started talking about that. But anyway, <laughs> we don't want to become like parodies of men, and not that she was. Um, the fact is that we want to stay in our feminine energy. And I'm going to finish again by reading something from another book I wrote a few years ago, um, which just talks about the future as the way I see it. If we're talking about getting rid of the old, outdated, patriarchal ways of running the world, it's essential to present a pragmatic vision of what we want to replace it with. We need an overall blueprint of what a new world, based on principles of the sacred feminine, would look like and how it would work. The primary foundation for such a world is cooperation. First and foremost, it's cooperation between male and female. As women, we know that the best and most efficient way to get things done is to work together, and that means living and working with men in harmonious coexistence, valuing the perspectives and strengths of both sexes and creating a higher quality of life for all. It must also be a world of cooperation between business and community, human beings and the planet, <coughs> national governments and non-governmental organisations, young and old, spirituality and silence... A silence, sorry, that's me, me telling myself to shut up, sorry. Spirituality and science and our inner and outer <laughs> selves. So thank you very much for being so attentive. <laughs> Julie. So I'm Julie Meyer, and I run Ariadne Capital, which was mentioned earlier. We're an investment bank, investment firm. We have a fund. Um, we do sell-side M&A. We sold a company to Google. So we're in that world of backing entrepreneurs and helping to create... Um, great businesses. And I think uh, I wanted to start off, I think it's been attributed by, to Madeleine Albright or Hillary Clinton, I can't remember which, but you know the quote, there's a special place in hell for those women who don't help other women. And it's really, it's really true. I think the way that I try to do that uh, is, I mean, Ariadne Capital, we're only 15 people, but half of us, half of the senior team and half of the company are women. We have some amazing uh, women shareholders who are entrepreneurs. I'm going to pick on Judy Piatkis right there because she's one of my shareholders. Uh, so we've created this model of entrepreneurs backing entrepreneurs. And I try to uh, promote women. My business partner in my fund is, is a woman. Um, I promoted her before she even asked for the promotion. Um, I try to showcase uh, women in business because I have lots of opportunities to talk about uh, successful entrepreneurs. 
I'm always amazed when people come up with lists and they say, you know what, Julie, it would be really great if you could put together a list of su successful technology entrepreneurs because we can't think of any. And then I send them a list of 200 just to prove that they haven't been thinking very hard. So I think, you know, I do believe in using the media. I believe that, you know, life is a battle of ideas. And so we have to be very, very clever about communicating those, those uh, ideas. And I think the opportunity to run my own investment firm is really to back uh, women entrepreneurs, not exclusively, uh, but again, 50%, I don't think any other technology or digital-oriented venture capital firm in London is backing 50% women entrepreneurs just simply because we find just as many great women out there. Um, that said, um, I do believe that you you don't ever win in life by playing by somebody else's rules. Um, and I kind of learned that pretty early in in life, uh, you have to create the rules of engagement if you want to win. And that's primarily because this combination of femininity and strength, which has been alluded to by some of the other panelists, and I think probably we all know, is not really properly understood. Um, so men sometimes, um, and sometimes women, because women can be very misogynist as well, try to put us in a box. We're, we're feminine, we're weak, or we're strong, and we're a man in, in, in women's clothes. And so that duality of being strong and feminine is not understood. And so for that reason, I encourage as many of my friends to become women entrepreneurs because I think until we're building our own cathedrals, um, we're not going to win. And so I, I didn't try to break through anybody else's glass ceiling. I just said I'm going to build my own cathedral, but it's going to be a very big cathedral. It's not going to be a little cathedral. And I really encourage other women to do that. Now, that said as well... Um, I remember the moment that that horrible tsunami happened. I think it was right around Christmas. I'm not sure if it was 2004, 2006. But what struck me was India's response. Does anybody remember what India said? India kind of said to the world, thanks very much, but we've got it covered. We, we don't need your aid. Now, of course, the world still continued to, I'm sure the Red Cross was right there and so forth. It's not that the world just said, okay, fine. But they gave a very clear message to the world that said, you know what, don't treat us as the weak, you know, country that can't take care of its own people. Um, and I live, in a, I live in a world where I believe very much, if I'm honest, that power is taken. You can't at the same time say, you know, I really need your, your help, although I'm one that asks for help all the time, but if, at a conceptual level, you just have to do it. Do I recognize there's discrimination? Yes. But I also recognize that um, in my own mind, there was a period of my life, mostly my 20s and until probably about 10 years ago, where I personally applied a discount to most of what I did. And through a, you know, probably a conversation which would take a lot longer, it was only when I flipped that discount to premium and I started applying a premium to what I was doing that the rest of the world started applying that premium back to me. So I think life is a mental game, and I think that we have to um, not stop promoting women before they ask, not stop giving the long list of successful technology entrepreneurs, not stop helping um, and connecting women and so forth. Um, but I think it needs to be, in a way, uh, similar to what India did with the tsunami, say, thanks, but you know what, we're great, got it covered, we're achieving, let's talk about all those achievements and so forth. And being on the board of four companies, um, some uh, companies here in the UK and elsewhere, I know today why I'm asked to be on those boards. I'm asked because I understand digital business models um, and, and entrepreneurial culture. And I don't want anyone ever to suggest that I wasn't asked because um, I understand those things. I don't want there to be any uh, taint to those appointments. And I also wonder sometimes, I was asked by Mervyn Davies to uh, comment in his consultation process, why should it be only 30%? You know, frankly, I think it should probably be 70 But 
you know, it, it will be, it will, you know, wherever that, that ends up, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that we're winning the war. I, in fact, in a chapter of my book that's coming out in the first quarter of next year, one of the chapters is called The World is Becoming Feminine. And I really do believe that. All of the qualities which have historically been referred to as traditional female leadership qualities, building transparency, building trust, uh, wired to think about the, the group alignment, listening, you know all the traditional qualities. Thank God, at the age of 45, these things are in the ascendancy, right? Um, it has probably some, something to do with where I am in my own professional maturity, but I know today I go to many meetings with a very, very autistic venture capital community, um, and I know that I have a competitive advantage because I'm wired differently. And there's this fundamental network orientation which exists in all business. This is a, the basis of all of the investing that we do at Ariadne Capital. The world has gone network. This is more important than just Facebook is important. If you're still thinking linear in any way, shape, or form, trying to sell something or trying to impose economics, you'll lose. The people who are winning, whether it's Apple that realigned the economics for the new music industry or Google who do that in information, Monetize, who do that in mobile banking here in the UK. The people who are winning are organizing the business model in a multi-dependency, multi-stakeholder world. Sound familiar? That's what women do. We are naturally wired to win in a network-orientated world. So is it going to be 15 years or 15 months? All I know is that we're going through a tipping point, ladies. And the tipping point is happening. And it's not that we don't continue to lift up and help, but excellence Everywhere we see it, right? We, we've all been recognizing there's some men that are on boards that are ridiculous and some women as well. We've seen every shape and form of excellence and performance and lack thereof. But I believe in, I want to live in rather, a carrot world rather than a stick world. And I really believe that the only way that you get people to change their behavior, whether it's a two-year-old or an 82-year-old, is you have to make them believe that it's in their interest to do so. And that's slightly more... Um, uh, you have to think through that very carefully. So my final thought is that I was very fortunate to have a fantastic father. My father said to me, I mean, he was, he's 76 years old today, and I don't know why. He was a very traditional, very conservative man, but not at all sexist. And he said to me when I was very young and just has continued to, you can do anything you set your mind to. And he was an entrepreneur, so he was very busy. And to be honest, I didn't see a lot of him. But in some of the most difficult times, I remember those words of my father, you can do anything you set your mind to. And I, I, when I was a child, I used to test him. I would say, well, I want to become the president of the United States. And he wouldn't <laughs> laugh. He would say, well, if you want to do that, Julie, and if you set your mind to it. So I think when, where men get it is when it comes to their daughters. I work with a lot of 55-year-old men <coughs> who will be however they will be with their women that they work with, their colleagues, their PA, their whatever. When it comes to their 24-year-old woman, their 24-year-old daughter, who's entering UBS, Goldman Sachs, you name it. I get the most, the most hilarious statements of them. They'll come in, we're sitting down having coffee. My daughter's being discriminated against at blah, 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 and it is, I, I refuse to put up with this, right? <laughs> and you see that they, they connect at a very basic level. And then it's just a, a short hop, skip, and a jump to get them to say, you know what, Larry, Harry, Joe, David, every woman is somebody's daughter. That's why you got to care, right? Because you don't want your daughter to be treated that way. So actually, the best way that you can start to change the culture is just every woman, think of that woman as somebody's daughter. And it, it gets them to close the gap because they're not wired 
to think about the group, right? Women have that natural advantage, and ladies, it is a tremendous advantage. It is so profound. We're shifting into 30 years. Read a great Venezuelan economist by the name of Carlota Perez, and she'll put it into perspective for you. But the fact that we're wired to think of the group in a network-orientated world means that this conversation, <laughs> if Julia chooses to host it in another year or five years, is going to be very, very different. We're moving not just from applying that premium to our own minds and, and, and leaving the discount behind, but I really believe that society is going to apply that premium to women. And so um, I wanted to have one final thing. Um, there was a comment that was made by our first speaker just around uh, the kind of a tactical point, but I just wanted to address it, paternity leave and so forth. You know, I work with a lot of private equity, uh, men that are running venture capital funds, private equity, hedge funds, you name it. The, the, private, the paternity leave discussion so that when a woman comes in, you, you don't know if you're going to employ her, whether or not it's going to be her or her husband who takes the paternity leave. I'm sorry, I don't think that's a, a solution. Um, I, as I mentioned to you, I, I hire women, men, uh, whoever's the best person for the job, and it just so happens, isn't it interesting, that it's about 50-50. Um, but I hear a lot of comments from men um, who just will, will share with me, don't hire any women. After 35, won't hire any women not give them any kind of chance. And I hear that so, so repeatedly. Obviously, I have opportunities to address that and so forth. But what I don't say back is, wouldn't it be good if paternity leave came in? Because they'd look at me completely askance. What I do say to them is, wouldn't it be great if you could judge a woman on her merits? And if she does want to work 100 hours a week and have four kids, whatever she chooses to do with her life, that she can sit down with you and to say, hey, Julie, I just want to tell you what I'm going to do. I plan on getting married in nine months, plan on having four kids, plan on continuing to work 100 hours a week, or whatever else. But they can't, that we can't have honest conversations with people, but it has to be in this artificially constructed by the government um, arrangement whereby we have to essentially fake and, you know, try to get you to think, not wear the, uh, you know, the diamond, you know, uh, engagement ring to the interview and so forth, because you can't be honest about what you're going you're gonna to say. So I think we need to get back to, as Lynn was, was uh, stating so well, a human set of relationships where you can architect your own future. And by being upfront with a future employer, let them know what you're going to do about your, um, your womanhood, your motherhood, your family, and that that's not going to be held uh, back, that you're going to be proactive. And then they can assess whether or not they believe you. They can assess whether or not they believe you're going to work 80 hours a week or have four kids or whatever. And I think that's a much more constructive. Take it down to the individual level and allow women to architect their <coughs> own lives. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to apologise about my voice. Last night I could virtually not speak and I was in an event and a number of people said to me, we, we were just before the opera started, well, it's just as well you're not singing. Well, I'm going to try now. Um, and actually the first thing I'm going to put on the gender agenda is that actually microphones need to be made to work for women because there's nowhere to clip the bloody thing on. <laughs> So you have to be wearing trousers or a belt or something. Anyway, um, I, just listening to the, the other people speaking here, I, I feel actually quite embarrassed, and particularly listening to Julie and what she does really naturally to promote women, not, not 
consciously thinking about it but doing it naturally because actually as I started thinking about today and what I was going to talk about I actually thought I never think about the gender agenda it's not something that rises high in my consciousness and then I thought well why is that maybe it's because I've worked 20 years in the performing arts where actually I don't perceive it to be a major problem but then I thought actually that's a bit of a cop-out because you know, I'm in a position of some influence and what am I actually doing? And, and I think, to me, that's fairly fundamental in all of this. It's about, personally, what do I do to help um, other women in, the, in, in my organisation, but more broadly, particularly to encourage, to mentor and to promote them? I think there's a lot of practical things we can do. Um, but actually, this whole process of thinking about this has probably raised many more questions for me, and I think Vivian might have alluded to that as well, that actually the answers are really, really difficult. Um, we've heard that women make up about 50% of the workforce globally. Uh, that, and I think my big thing is a lot, of, a lot of focus goes on women on boards. But actually, I don't think that's the big issue. I think the big issue is women actually moving up through the leadership. And, and I'm going to talk from a more corporate perspective than a community perspective here, but it's actually leadership. That, that a lot of women are coming into the, um, in the professional workforce and anywhere else in their droves. They're, it's fairly even, the recruitment. But what happens further along the line? And actually the only way we are going to get more people on boards eventually, more women on boards eventually, is to have the pool of people underneath them. So I actually believe that we all have to do something personally. We have to do something personally to help other people. But we actually have to do something as women ourselves. And I, th I think women do undersell themselves a heck of a lot. And I know I've done it on many occasions. I nearly did it this morning over something. And I stopped and thought, why am I being so pathetic about that? You know, actually, I've got a right to be involved in whatever it was. Uh, and, and I think women do it. Somebody said to me um, not very long ago that if a woman looks at a job interview and she looks at the criteria and she goes, oh, I can't do A, I can't do C, and I can't do E, uh, I won't apply. A man might look at it and say, oh, I can do B, I can do C, I'll apply. Um, and it is, it's actually what Julie was saying. We have to believe in ourselves. We have to be bolder. So for me, the top of the gender agenda is actually women taking responsibility. Responsibility for ourselves, pushing ourselves forward. Responsibility for other women. What do we do? And we must lead by example. But I think one of the things, it's, it's actually sort of easy for us to sit here and it's, it, I find it really difficult to work out what to do and I, I think that actually we need to start listening to women that are trying to get themselves from having started work um, in an environment are trying to get themselves to be junior managers, middle managers and senior managers. What do they actually need? What is it that they want? And that's where I think we have a responsibility. And I think the ultimate aim is that there should be no gender agenda, because actually it shouldn't be necessary. And that's where I think we've got to get to. Thank you. Thanks, Julie Blaine Damelin. I have a question about the 
perhaps a gap that I might see between the number of women starting their own small and medium-sized businesses. And although, Julie, you're seeing a lot of women entrepreneurs and, and seeing a lot of uh, perhaps the largest pool of women there, my hunch is there's probably a gap elsewhere in the VC and entrepreneur stage, at least for high-growth companies, where women might be underrepresented both perhaps internally as well as entrepreneurs. So I'm wondering if, on the one hand, women are starting, is it, is it that small-based, home-based business sector that is growing by women, and if so, great? And is there a gap between what's happening in the high-growth sector? Um, and maybe we'll get there in the next generation if... I'm just wondering about that gap. Just really quickly, uh, in you know, the technology... Uh Venture capital-backed technology space, we don't have any women yet, to my knowledge, that have taken a company from zero and created a billion-pound euro uh, company out of London or Europe. And we need uh, to, because, again, back to that whole idea of make it obvious to men that it's in their interest to back women. Um, part of that is a financial interest. Once it becomes clear that women create businesses better, more sustainable, uh, create industries, define categories, and so forth. Um, so, uh, you know, is there a gap? Yes. Part of what I'm trying to do, one of the reasons why I backed Christina Domecq, who was building Spinvox, is because I felt, and I still feel, despite everything, she was, she raised 50 million pounds from Goldman Sachs, and if you heard about what happened to Spinbox, it was a very kind of nasty end. But um, I thought she had the ability to create a billion-pound business. And that, you know, examples lead to these kind of supernova effects, more people than get. And then, then you can't say, well, there's no, you know, billion-pound companies built in and led by a woman, right? So there is definitely a gap. Um, but it's a gap that will be solved. We're just trying to advance the future. Uh, on the SME side, um there's definitely more women, small, very much small startup, almost self-employed, but working with other women. That's what I see at Beehive all the time is you'll have a woman with a particular skill uh, and, a, and a speciality that then networks with other women that do complementary um, specialities, and then they come together and between them they become an agency, and that's how they're doing it in the way sort of production format type thing. So there's a critical mass perspective. It's a lot of money and a lot of women out there. Um, the uh, industry that I mentioned, because I've sort of been in that industry on, for too many years and I'm still on the fringes of it, where women have done well, of course, is the fashion industry, where uh, Netta Porte, Jimmy Choo, um, and Anne Heimarsh, Stella McCartney, there are names that have done well and built up considerable-sized businesses. I, I can't think of another industry, however, where it's quite as obvious as that, perhaps marketing, maybe... Advertising, but, 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 but primarily fashion. But it's, I'm very interested in that critical mass of SMEs, but there is a lot of work to be done, which obviously uh, Judy's looking at, is how to take women up to the, the high-growth area, which is important, very important. I guess I'd also say that um, I think it's important from the gender and gender perspective to be a little bit agnostic to sector. The great thing is women are very interested and present at the intake level within corporate entities within SME sectors as entrepreneurs in creative areas. And there are obviously <coughs> some functions within companies, the enabling functions, stereotypically HR and communications, but also very successfully in those functions, I'd say, where women are represented. But at the intake level, the proportions are pretty good, if not disproportionately high, say, in the SME sector. The issue is, to the point that was made about the funnel, what happens next? How much... Um, control, impact, influence, shaping, ownership, success when it comes to then moving through to crack the funds, to get the key backer, 
to qualify for the promotion, et cetera. And that's where I think um, where, the, where the, the next bit of hard work needs to be yeah, done. I think that's where the focus needs to be. A lot of hands going up at the back. Um, I think the lady right at the back was the first, actually, in the right. dance sweater. Um, so my name is Claire Enders, and I'm the founder of Enders Analysis, a woman-owned business. And I echo very much the sentiments of Julie Meyer. Uh, on the subject, and I think that women are unbelievably effective at starting businesses. And for those who think about 30%, 25% of the businesses started in this country last year were started by women. Uh, so I think that's very good. Now, I was just wondering whether the panel has any thoughts on, on really the most damning of all the statistics we can uh, discuss, which is that the number of uh, women directors uh, that are executive directors on, on boards of FTSE uh, 350 companies is, I, I, is I believe, it 2%. So it's, although people may talk about 30% as a goal, the fact is, is that the breeding ground for those possible NEDs, which actually I dispute um, the whole sense of whether NEDs are really that useful anyway, but um, I don't have them myself. Um, but nonetheless, it, you, one has to focus on the fact that only 2% of executive directors of the FTSE 350 are female. And although women do very well in fashion and they do very well in NGOs, uh, they start businesses. Uh, they're incredibly good, as Julie said, at the most amazing range of tasks. And the tools exist there for many women to start businesses. But nonetheless, what we've seen in the last generation is, in effect, a comprehensive failure of women getting through to the boards as executive directors. And if there is any thoughts that you have, maybe it's just not the right environment, maybe we should all peel off and start our businesses like I did, and Julie does, fine. But that seems to me the core, because so many women are employed by those organizations and they don't have role models on the board, and if they do, those tend to be disproportionately likely to be HR or marketing. And so these are very narrow functions which are seen as as not the most important. So any thoughts that you have on how it is that one could promote the thought to boards, to chairmen, that executive uh, 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 directors who are female would actually make a great difference to corporate governance. Thank you. On, on the issue of this gap, um, I was a corporate lawyer and um, I hated it. I'm now a management consultant. I'm much smaller, but I provide services still into that sector. Um, for me, the big challenge is not becoming corporate. It's not sitting on the board. Because actually, I don't want to, as, as you said earlier, brilliantly, I make more of a sustainable impact, financial, social, environmental, as do my clients, because I'm not that type of organization. So I completely agree that you need to have people on the board, but actually, for many of us, it's not the place to be, it's not the way to be. Hi, Catherine Mayer, time. Um, I wasn't intending to speak since I'm speaking twice this afternoon, but um, I felt the need to ask a question because you have all sounded so optimistic about the notion that in this turmoil that we have out there that there is also the possibility for change for uh, women to do very well out of the, the very fast changing dynamics out there which if you look at the history of the last two world wars would seem to be borne out in many respects although of course what happens is that women make great leaps forward and then fall back again um, on the other hand at the same time I was also reading Twitter because of course I'm tweeting this and noticed um, a new statistic a new bit of number crunching on yesterday's autumn statement saying that women had done much worse out of the autumn statement than men had. 
And one of the things that everybody's looking at with the particular economic situation is the parallels to the, the hard times in the 70s and 80s. And one of the things then, of course, was this huge polarization in society where the people who did well did very well and the people who were the poorest did very badly. And we seem to be seeing that again. But one of my questions and concerns would be, where do you, is there a danger that, we, that some women will do very well out of these changing dynamics, but that the women lower down the pecking order will be left behind again, um, and that women, instead of moving as a group, taking advantage as a group, that instead you will see people doing a lot worse? We have the opportunity to not have false trade-offs. Choosing an entrepreneurial self-directed direction is perfectly valid. It's a right for some people, and women can be incredibly, if not disproportionately, successful. Choosing a more corporate, a more institutional-based career is an absolutely valid choice, and women should and can be significantly more successful than we have been. <laughs> similar analogy for the public sector, similar analogy for the third sector. And we need given the complexity and ambiguities of the world and the, 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 the magnitude of problems accentuated by the polarity in incomes in the UK, but acutely, even more acutely in other geographies, we need the intelligence and empathy of women to help lead us through all of those sectors. And so it's important for me, just, you know, just what's on my mind, is to not set up false choices between excellence and leadership and women's agenda in those different fields. Pick your own poison. Choose where you want to be successful. And I think, as probably reflected in the breadth of experiences on the panel and in the room, there are ways and a need for women to be more successful. As it relates to the board point, I, I do think that it is factually true in the Davies Report and the Women Matter analysis and every piece of data you could look at absolutely validates that statement, which is why I make the point about the need for much more systemic change, particularly within institutions. What you don't measure in performance and health-based organization doesn't move. It's just like the waiting times, right? It went from 18 <coughs> months to 18 weeks. It's now back up to whatever it is. If you're not measuring that, you don't have an idea where that is. So if you don't know the number of women who apply, the number of women who pass through, how they do on the different recruitment and tests, how women fare in terms of promotion and feedback, the mentoring coverages, how proactive women are about owning their own future and following up. If you don't actually measure it, it'll never get managed to a better outcome. Similarly, if you don't have CEOs who are switched on and aware, and frankly, I don't care whether it's their daughter, their wife, the, a, a killer mentee who helps make them really successful, whatever is the trigger, Pernia's CEO mentoring program, where she's almost by virtue of, if you're a real CEO, you're in that mentorship programming, using their peer pressure to get the CEOs and chairs in. I really don't care how we bring them to the table, but that leadership mindset, because those are the leaders that we have today, like it or lump it. And then the third thing I'd say is be much more systematic in applying those programs through companies. It is very clear that if Unilever, if a McKinsey, if the government, any institution chooses to move the needle on two or three objectives, it can happen. It's just a matter of whether you choose gender, and I would argue diversity more broadly, is one of those objectives or not. If that's the case, then I do think when you're working in larger organizations, which everyone will not choose to, but if you are, you need to push on much more systemic levers. Lynn. Um, I think the point on um, 
the two percent on the let's see 200 500 whatever whatever was quoted is really important actually to bring attention to because what's happened in my eyes through Lord Davis's report and the 30% and all the rest of the emphasis is it's all being kind of put onto non-exec roles. It has not been put onto where the real power is of executive directors. So it's almost like, you know, um, we're making the right noises, but we're not really going to do any action that's going to make any difference. So let's talk about women on the boards doing non-execs, which most of them don't want to do, which don't really have any power anyway, and so on. But absolutely, where are the executive women? And I think the work that McKinsey's have been doing, and I have been following your reports, has been mm. fantastic. That's the, it's the first time when I first saw mm. your one and two reports a number of years ago, mm. where it was very clear that women on the boards really do make a business more successful. And, and that very important point has still not been taken up a lot by not necessarily the business world, the media world, the fact that these are enormously important points. And I, I think it's horrific that we are in that situation where we're, where we're hearing people say, oh, the politicians, all due respect to Lynn Feverson, it's okay because we're, we're putting a lot of emphasis onto Lord Davis's report. Forget non-execs. We want to be execs if we're going to be anywhere at all. Or we're going to start our own businesses where we're happier, some of us, anyway. So that's my point on, on that. On the point that Catherine said, which I think is incredibly important also, mm. what's going to happen to the poor women? Okay, be like the 70s and 80s, maybe women who are making things happen will do even better, but what about the ones who aren't? That, I suppose, relates to what I was talking about, back to community. Whether it be a working-class um, estate in North Manchester where there's constant violence going on or Tottenham or whether it be a small rural village where where the former kind of um, forms of income from farming is dying down by the second it is always in those areas where things are the most seriously worrying that women can come together and usually come together and certainly not just in this country in war zones and all over the place where there is no food to put on their family's table that's when they will go out and they will start making it there was a story in the papers this weekend and some of you may know about it anyway the town in yorkshire which is not necessarily women it's women and men of that town are taking every bit of wasteland and growing planting seeds and growing vegetables which everybody in that town can go and take to eat anytime they want that's what I think we're going to be seeing more and more of. That doesn't mean to say that the women that are in areas of deprivation are going to start SMEs. It doesn't mean they're going to start being mentored up into going into the corporate world. They are going to be about survival. And it will be the women taking the leadership in those communities that will say we are going to survive. We are going to work together to keep our children off the streets in whatever way we can. Um, and I really sincerely hope that comes from a new way. And when I say I feel positive about the future, I don't feel positive about the future continuing on as it is. I feel positive <coughs> about a new kind of future where we're going to see new ideas, new leadership, and uh, new patterns emerging, which are going to be where human beings, women and men, can actually live a more fulfilled life of doing the things that come naturally to us instead of putting ourselves in boxes and behaving in a way that is not who we are as as souls as much as anything so that's my excitement is let us now be where we can be instead of being behaving the way we think we should be um, and I think it will happen it has to happen do I I just want to unless you two have burning desires come on that particular point do you Julie just real quick yeah no I think um, great women are always right under the noses and could be promoted why aren't they I think it's the same it's the same reason, you know, you go home at Christmas and your family who knows you really well 
can't quite make out why you've done anything well because you're still just the little girl and you've, you're 25 years older, but they can't see it, right? And so that's why, you know, the, the building your own cathedrals is important because the more you move around, the more people see you in different environments. I'm always amazed when men do talk about the women that would be on the boards or the executives that they would promote. It's women who have stood out, not um, the women that are under their nose. And so there is, I think, just a, as a female entrepreneur, you have ways of standing out that I think speak to the challenge, which is to get people to recognize that you're, that you're standing out. But I, I, I just think it comes down to really women figuring out what their strengths are. So for me, everything changed once I understood what my strengths are because I could build an unfair advantage and then I could release my unique contribution. And that took me a very long time. I didn't kind of really start to figure that out until I was 35 years old. If we can help women do that when they're 22 instead of 35, that's great. But if somebody had said, Julie, focus on science, focus on technology, focus on something else, but it wasn't my strength, my unique unfair advantage, my unique contribution, I would have been a failure. We're good at the things that, you know, we like to do the things that we're good at and vice versa. And I think that's what we have to encourage women to do. And then they will naturally be, naturally naturally be exceptional yeah. at the things that they choose to do because they're good at them. Well, I just want to, uh, at one point that we haven't actually discussed at the, at this, is, is, is parenting. And I just want to put it to you, should we be talking not just about the gender, but, uh, agenda, gender agenda, but the parenting agenda? Because if you look at Scandinavian countries, where they have the biggest gender equality, they have, and I, I know this from Sweden, where I did a documentary for Channel 4 10, 15 years ago, <coughs> they tackled this thing on the list of parenting. So they said, okay, we're going to you know, do away with distinctions very often between maternity and paternity leave. We're going to make it parental leave. And I remember at the time, and, and you will lose it to a couple if you don't take it, if, 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 if the man doesn't take it as well as the woman. And going and interviewing um, human resources managers in several, several large Swedish companies um, who said, actually, we think this is great because when men take parental leave, they often come back as better time managers. <laughs> yeah, right? Surprise. And just the Swedes, I couldn't believe it. You know. Now, I work in, and the BBC is pretty good at this, and I work in an office where two men um, each leave, at, uh, you know, they, they have a, a contract where it's at three o'clock or one day a week they leave to pick up their kids from work. And I have to say, there's no division in the office between kind of the women doing parenting and the men doing parenting. You know, since we all anecdotally know stories about women not retaining their jobs because they've just found it simply too difficult with, to have children and pursue a career. Isn't this one of the levers that we have to change? And isn't, you know, isn't this an institutional lever you can make it easier in big companies? Well, I do think that actually the gender agenda is actually also about empowering men. Um, to not, not only through having things like parental leave, but actually just through attitude that actually it's okay for a, a man to, to go home and pick the children up. And I think that that has got to be a really big thing um, that we try and somehow engender because I, I, I don't have children, so um, I don't have that problem, but I can see it for other people that it does become an issue because it's them that has to, you know, it's the woman that has to take on most of the responsibility. I'd, I'd add to that that um, you know having the right set of policies, like you, HR, administrative, etc., policy in the context of an institution. You know, there's the legal minimum. There's what you want to do to differentiate yourself as a company. 
is actually incredibly important. And it's easy to take for granted or almost assume that it's there. You know, it's sort of like the uh, Disabilities Act or something. You know, you have certain things that now people expect, well, why don't you have those basic things in place? And so that's good, and that's a good step one, and we shouldn't take it for granted, particularly because there's a wide range of businesses that maybe haven't gotten to step one. Um, that said, you know, the advice I give to, to younger women that I, and I think about some of the things that have been catalytic in my own experience, have been more about the choices you make within that framework. You know, number one, choose the right partner for you. You know, if you have a partner who fundamentally <laughs> believes that you should be in the model of his mother and sisters, the pressure you will get when you produce two children is to be in the model of his mother and sisters. And when you're, if you're surprised 15 years down the track, <laughs> then, you know, who's to blame there? Um, it's from the counter experience because I married someone who I'm very much in partnership with, very much who is, um, who gets the, the fullness and the well-roundedness that comes from attempting to be your full professional self and impactful and your full personal and parenting self. But what I would say is the framework is absolutely required. It is missing in some places, and shame on those institutions, public or private, that don't have them. And more kudos to the women who decide that they decide want to set their own framework instead of waiting for someone else to do it for them. But that really is a starting point. It's putting them into action and giving people, but women as um, uh, real influencers in families. You know, my grandmother says that men are the head of the families. She's 87, so she comes from a mindset and experience where for her it was very important to center her husband, my grandfather, as the head of the family. But she says, always remember that women are the neck. <laughs> <laughs> and so if we're the neck, the choices we make around who does what in parenting and the roles and expectations are very important. And ideally, you'd make those decisions together with your partner who affirms, reinforces, and informs, and gives you the courage to stand in the wind, to break away and be an entrepreneur, to go the course and go for the promotion when you need that little bit of encouragement. Like for me, it's one of probably the most important decisions is having the right support network around you because it gives you the, the, the endurance to be able to weather the ups and downs of building your own business or you know, a corporate role. Oh my God, there's lots and lots of that. Okay, I, I'll take, um, I'll, I'll take a whole, three questions in a row and a brief answers. So uh, you two ladies there and... Uh... I'm uh, Anne Perkins, I write for The Guardian. I was I, uh, following on from what Kirsty was saying, which um, I, I was a really important point. And I, I thought that Julie was being rather dismissive about the government's proposals for parental leave. And I wonder what role you think the law can, can uh, have in changing attitudes or whether you think women need to do it for themselves. Mm. Yeah, I don't... I just take, a, take one more and then Julie. Sorry, I just okay, want to sorry. take a cluster of questions okay. quickly and then we come back to you. Uh, Sophie Livingston, Chief Executive of City of London, which is a youth and education charity. Um, we have uh, lots of volunteers full-time in schools, um, majority young women signing up to volunteer. Um, and I find it astonishing when I go into our schools, the children are obsessed with hierarchy and want to know who's the boss of City Year. And I go in and they can't believe that I'm the boss, um, which I find utterly depressing. Um, the other um, uh, comment I was going to make was that um, I've been very fortunate in being mentored by um, two former bosses who were both pretty lefty feminist women who really promoted me. But I certainly haven't seen that amongst my own generation. And I think there is a sort of next generation gap in terms of the sisterhood and pushing, pushing each other forward. Um, so I just wondered what thoughts you all had about how we can change that zeitgeist and, and help sort of bring that sisterhood forward for this generation. Janice Atkinson, I, I work for um, a women-only think tank, or a, a think tank that thinks about women's issues. 
Um, I also write for the Daily Mail's Right Minds, and it's leading on from what the Guardian lady was saying. Judy, you seem to be arguing for less government intervention, parental leave and childcare, etc., that women should be negotiating their own roles and what, how they want to leave, have leave and also the men. And Vivian, you seem to be arguing for more government intervention to actually um, sort of set the benchmarks so that, that then companies then take on. We've had 13 years of sort of tinkering with Labour doing that. It didn't work. So where, where do you th two think we go from here with government intervention or non-government intervention? Um. Lynn, Lynn hinted at something earlier which I thought was really interesting and the way that I would refer to it is I think there's a new, a new social contract which is emerging. The social contract which was set up after the war which is more or less 60 years and you know the way the world has worked I think has shattered. I don't think everybody realizes that yet and something new is, is emerging. And, and that roughly is between how government, the individual and business cooperate. And I think we, that will be clear in 7 to 10 years but we're starting to see elements of it and then I, de I think we've been defining that here. But it, we're going through this deleveraging of it. I certainly don't want to be dismissive of anybody's efforts to make the world a better place, so hopefully um, I'm not. But I think that part of what's going on is there's a battle between who's in charge, ec economics or politics. I personally am not impressed with politicians and what they've been able to achieve for the world. That's probably the best way I can, I can say it. I look at the role of government in general, and I tend to be much more impressed with uh, the role of people who are creating businesses who then go on to tackle social problems and create. So I'm on the side of uh, economics. However, this is not about what I think. It's just my observations are that economics is in the ascendancy and that it's going to be driving that new social contract. Very positive things will come out of it, like more and more people being individual capitalists freelancers, entrepreneurs, etc. I think a lot of these changes will help women because of the network orientation to the world. I do think the world is going to become much more unfair. And to be honest, I'm not sure there's a lot that all of us can do about it. Again, not because I want the world to become more unfair, but I think the digital divide and people, the network effects happening because of these digital business models in a network-oriented world, and I know that sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, but I think it's going to become even more bifurcated. And the trick is to help young women get into a digital environment so that they can participate and be part of the positive network effects. And to be honest, I, I think that it'll take government 20 years to catch up and even figure out what's happening in the world. That's the only thing. And it's not meant to be dismissive, but it's just meant to be kind of an observation that I see from lot, lots of different points of view. Vivian, do you just briefly, as I think we're going to have to the mentoring question, I think you may, may have to discuss later, but just very briefly on this government intervention and parental leave, and then I'm going to have to wrap up, I think, from Fred. I think the magnitude of the need for expanded women's participation at all levels, in all sectors of society, is large enough that we need all levers. It's all hands on deck. And um, there, there cannot be a scenario where expanded uh, parental leave and, and other policies to have better documentation of women and gender diversity participation and the economic performance and the social impact that has cannot be a good thing. Similarly, setting a broad target, not a quota, but a broad range of aspiration that is you know, 15 times today's level is a stretch target that the Davies uh, report is trying to set as a clarion call to get people moving, not direct them, overly direct them on the way we go. So I think certainly we would argue that having a much more robust fact base about 
um, for these policies and who's taking them, et cetera. Tracking it against a big ambition is important. And if government policies, private sector policies, social entrepreneurs help to achieve that, then that's a good thing. Sorry to all of you who didn't get a chance to ask your questions, um, but let me just thank um, our excellent panel, Vivian Hunt, Lynn Franks, uh, Julie Meyer, and the rest of the mercy. Thank you very much.